Welcome everyone to this event at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, today's event is called UK Market Regulation after, Brex after Brexit, Higher, Lower or Stay the Same. My name is Minou Shafiq and I'm the director of the LSE and, uh, and wanted to welcome our panel for today. This event is part of LSE's program Brexit and Beyond, which is co-hosted by our European Institute and our School of Public Policy. The topic for today is how best can the UK economy compete in the world in the future? What model of market regulation should we seek and can we realistically attain? And over what timescale and how might the UK strategy be changed by wider exogenous pressures or by domestic pushback? And what accommodations should we seek in regulatory standards with our external partners? If we are going to take back control, what are we going to do with it? We have a fantastic panel for today's discussion with expertise in many dimensions of the UK economy, agriculture, industry, energy, and climate change and labor. So let me introduce them briefly and then I will ask to hear their views. We've asked all of them the same question. That is, some saw Brexit as an opportunity for a new lighter touch regulatory model for the UK, but others think that leveling up, climate change, and building back better mean a more activist state. Is this a transformative moment? And what would you do? And what do you think the state should do in future that is different than what it did in the past? Our speakers today are Tony Danker, who's the Director General of the CBI, the Confederation of British Industries. Uh, he will speak first. He'll be followed by Francis O'Grady, who's the General Secretary of the Trade Unions Congress, the TUC. She'll be followed by Minette Batters, who's the president of the National Farmers Union of England and Wales. And then finally, we'll hear from our own Sam Frankenhauser, who's a professor at the LSE and director of the Grantham Research Institute on climate change. So let me turn it over first to Tony Danko, who'll start us off. Tony. I am just unmuting. And, and I wonder if we'll ever get bored of muting and unmuting. But listen, it's a it's a real uh, honor to be asked to join you. Thank you, Manoush and, and the LSE. And what a stellar panel uh, with people I know well. Sam, I don't know very well, but great to see you, Sam. Francis and Manette, I know very well. Uh, look, I think if, if we look at the broad question, I mean, I could talk all day about a new economic vision for the country. I've, I'm doing a piece of work on that with the CBI right now. Uh, we need a new economic vision for the decade ahead. It needs to be about growth and growth that's shared upon, across all parts of society. We need to build a more competitive, dynamic and future focused economy. But I'm not going to talk about that because I could rant on about that for hours and hours and not get to the crux of the title, which is about regulation. And of course, regulation is a conversation that is very live post-Brexit, exactly as you said, Manoush, this idea of taking back control and doing so through the lever of regulation is very in vogue. So I'm going to tackle that head on a little bit. Uh, and then I'm sure in the debate and the questions, we'll get into broader questions about what now the UK economy. Uh, so look, the first thing I would say is, uh, having said all that, it is about more than regulation. I do think it's right that now we're outside the EU, we absolutely think about how to take advantage of that, about how we understand the freedoms and what they allow us to do. And that, that goes across trade policy, immigration policy, investment policy, 
and yes, sector and market regulation. So it is the first time we can do that in four or five decades. So we should take the moment and use it well. Uh, but I, I do think that while the politicians are really interested in the question of, so what regulations do we now change? Let's do that first. It's actually not really where businesses are. Uh, businesses aren't rushing to that agenda. In fact, they're either at a much higher level of question or at a much more operational and practical one. So when I talk to firms, uh, they are really interested in UK competitiveness now and a decade ahead of UK competitiveness. And they want to know what's the competitiveness plan how are we going to compete in the world? And then work back from there. So don't start talking about what can we change now that we've got some freedom uh, and, and can we score some runs in cricketing terms? They want to know what's the big plan and let's work back from there to work out the changes we need to make. Secondly, in much more operational uh, terms, uh, changing regulation sounds like a great idea. You know, less regulation or better regulation sounds like a great idea. But any changes to regulation create highly unproductive periods of adjustment. That's the reality, right? Most businesses and firms, small to large, have spent the last few years optimizing their businesses against a regulatory framework. So the minute you come along and make change, you create a huge amount of unproductive activity. That's just the price you pay. Now, it might be worth it in the long run, but that is the reality. And I just, most people are saying, look, we've got so much to do to get the economy back on track. We've got so much to do following this budget to get investment, business investment back on track. Feels like an odd time to start the sort of unproductive activity of regulatory change. Which is not to say that we don't need to do it at some point, but it doesn't feel like the economic priority to firms. And then also when you talk to firms about regulation, I've gone round, uh, round pretty much most sectors in the last sort of 10 weeks on this. Actually, divergence from EU regulation is low down their list of regulatory agenda items, right? So they've got a lot of stuff to say about regulatory creep, about regulatory fragmentation, about regulatory speed. Uh, and for some sectors, by the way, divergence means double regulation and double the cost, right? That is the reality of some sectors in the post-Brexit settlement. So people aren't really queuing up for divergence. Uh, although obviously people see there may well be some benefits and I'll come on to that. Uh, so my overall message is, you know, let's beware opportunism at the expense of a more strategic approach. And we've put our heads together in the last few weeks in preparation for this discussion. And I think we've got four principles that should guide Britain's approach to regulation and the question of divergence now. The first one is pretty much echoes what I've just said. Regulation must be in service of and informed by a 10-year vision of the British economy. And uh, for us, by the way, you know, I've said it already, that means building a competitive, dynamic and future-focused economy. Uh, you know, the big opportunities of the decade ahead need to be in that vision, net zero and decarbonization, a much more digital economy and business sector, R&D and innovation at the heart of our competitiveness. And I think the question for the regulatory framework is, if you take that vision for the economy and work from that end of the telescope back, then you answer the question, regulation in the service of what? So I think regulation in the service of newfound freedom is not good enough. Regulation in service of what kind of economy are we trying to build? And then you'll get better answers, less opportunistic and more compelling, I think, to businesses that will have to go through sort of unproductive engagement and regulatory change, but they can see the prize that the regulatory change is in service of. That's principle number one. Principle number two, 
we can start and win a race to the top on regulation, not a race to the bottom. And we can do that with smarter and better regulation. So done, cre you know, done correctly, this can be a regulatory environment that protects, promotes, develops the highest standards in a way that's cost effective, proportionate, and flexible to respond to the changes in society. In doing so, I genuinely believe the UK can demonstrate real leadership on the regulatory agenda. We can retain, therefore, our, our reputation, which exists as a top place to invest, and be the envy of our neighbours and competitors for reasons I'll come on to. So I think that Brexit does give the UK the ability to change pieces of regulation that have stifled innovation or hindered investment or needlessly burdened uh, businesses. But let's be clear about what the competitive advantage would be from better and smarter regulation. And let me give you four competitive advantages. One, we can be much more future focused, new technologies, new consumer realities. You can do that, by the way, when you're not trying to align 27 different countries behind a regulatory framework, which takes a long time. Secondly, that's the point about agility. We can be much more agile. When the regulation is out of date, you can make the change. You don't have to go around the houses for five years to do so. Thirdly, we can be more proportionate in our regulation and we can root it in the right balance that I think our regulation needs to find behind investment. You know, we need some of our businesses and strategic sectors to be really prioritizing investment if we're going to have the growth we need in the next 10 years and consumer protection. But what you can do is you can have one regulator, a British regulator, working with both parties of society directly in forging that balance rather than regulation in Europe, which is often created in the Petri dish, the political Petri dish of Brussels. So it can be more proportionate and it can be more informed directly by the stakeholders it's trying to regulate for, uh, and it can do that quickly. And finally, more dynamic, allowing regulators to move more quickly. And I think that's really the story of the MHRA and the vaccine was I, I, I don't personally put it down to, you know, a Brexit, uh, a Brexit dividend per se. But I do think that it points the way to actually high standards, but high pace and agility. And I think that's what the MHRA demonstrated on the vaccine. In general, by the way, I think life sciences is, is a really interesting proof point for this sort of new competitive advantage. I think we can now lead the world on cell and gene therapy, use of digital uh, health and clinical trials, the way we use AI and machine learning in healthcare. And we can do that really well with strong high standard regulation and really quickly. Uh, more broadly, you know, that, that will be true beyond life sciences, whether or not it's AI or net zero technologies by essentially having sovereignty over regulation, we can have high standards on future focused dimensions of industry and we can do them quickly. You know, so much is made in the polit political debate about regulation around a race to the bottom, uh, that actually the competitive advantage comes from lower regulatory standards. The truth is when I speak to my opposite numbers in European countries, the things that European businesses fear most about Britain's new sovereignty is not lowering standards. It's the fact that we will gain competitive advantage from everything I just said. High standards, uh, formed quickly, uh, and dynamic and agile as things change. That's what will give Britain competitive advantage. So that's the first two principles, final two principles, and then I'll hand over to others. Principle three, we need a singular and integrated focus 
on the economic impact of our regulation. Can somebody somewhere in government look across the landscape of regulation to ensure that it is pro-growth, pro-investment, and pro-competitiveness? Can somebody uh, can that take that view and have the principles, policies, and processes that ensure that taken together, our regulation is uh, enabling that economic vision of the country? By the way, this is not to diminish the importance of social regulation, which is, of course, a critical role of regulation, but it's to avoid unintended consequences on economic behavior or to prevent endless fragmentation or duplication, which many of our businesses now see in regulation and provide a proper framework of economic assessment, which is not unified in this country today, and which I think we should probably do now going forward. And finally, principle four. Can the UK take a global lead on regulation? We have two opportunities this year in the G7 and COP to reinforce our commitment to world leading standards and cooperation on regulation. I think it's also a chance to burnish our credentials as an innovator across international regulatory forums, such as the OECD, where, for example, we can work in international concert on futures design of global tax systems. We are internationally respected on regulation. It's worth remembering that. And I think it, continued to be, it can continue to be a source of our soft power. And it's interesting that now we, Britain has a seat at tables where usually the European Union held our seat for us, us and 27 others. We now take a seat, uh, a more prominent role in the international trade discussions, international soft power uh, framework around, for example, regulation. And I think we should take advantage of that. So to finish, less change for change's sake, more change in the service of a decade-long economic vision, working from that vision backwards to work out what the regulation is in service of, and change to demonstrate our international leadership and soft power in a rapidly changing world. Okay, thank you very much. You've raised lots of interesting issues, but we will come back to them. Uh, I will now turn to Francis. Thank you very much, Manoush, and thank you so much to LSE for organising this. Um, from a TUC perspective, we never understood why a Prime Minister who was promising to protect and enhance workers' rights couldn't sign up to the level playing field, especially if that would have helped uh, protect frictionless access for uh, trade. That to us was common sense. But um, I wanted to start with the reality check because of course we had the budget last week, a budget for recovery, for jobs. And actually the headlines were dominated by that 1% nurses pay offer. Um, and the polls I think on that pay offer have been really interesting in terms of across the spectrum people feeling that just isn't right. What looks as if it will be a real pay cut uh, for people who put their own health on the line for us doesn't feel right. And what it says to me is that if we're being presented um, with the choice of bouncing back to business as usual or having change and a new social contract, then I think there is an appetite for some real change. There are lots of practical reasons why we need that change. Um, in a post-Brexit UK, uh, still profound issues around country of origin rules, around um, supply chains, and frankly, uh, something I think 
uh, perhaps deserves more attention is the strain on the union of the United Kingdom. You know, there's pretty profound pressure going on as we speak. Secondly, those big challenges that Tony talked about, whether that's climate change and aging population, AI and automation, we've still got to somehow tackle all of that. And thirdly, I think what's increasingly clear, not least with experts talking about resurgence of new virus strains, hopefully the vaccinations, I had my jab yesterday, hopefully um, the you know, serious health consequences of that will be much mitigated. But it seems to me common sense that we are gonna have to hardwire in health, safety and resilience into our economy. That requires a very different role I think for the for the state, the foundation, from my perspective, needs to be uh, at the risk of um, sloganizing myself, but is good green jobs close to home. That's the eighty five billion pound plan for investment that the TUC uh, set out for over a million jobs. Uh, for an industrial policy to work, you need really broad consensus. It matters who you have in the room. And you also have to get the architecture right. And, you know, I would just note that if you're going to sustain an industrial plan for more than what feels like five minutes sometimes in this country, uh, if you're going to sustain it for the long term, then you do have to have the right structures, the right architecture. And as I said, the right people around the table, including uh, unions, but it's also got to be about tackling inequality at its roots. And that's where I think high employment standards, not deregulation, but high good employment standards and strong unions have a really important uh, role to play. I think we we all, <laughs> um, you know, that, that kind of push for apparent deregulation on the employment rights front came a little sooner. Uh, than even I had expected when we discovered, thanks to the FT, um, in January that there was a secret review of employment rights uh, being conducted by the business department. Uh, Alex Sharma at the time, still not clear exactly at whose behest. Um, but our old friend, the Working Time Directive and all those really important rights, uh, limiting long working hours, providing for rest breaks, and critically, some of the case law associated with that around paid holidays were apparently uh, up for grabs. I mean, we were very pleased that the day we met Quasi Kwarteng, he then went on pestered that night to announce uh, the review had been axed. Uh, but nevertheless, it's left us nervous and you can't help feeling and I do wonder again kind of uh, some of the politics around this but the contrast with the Biden administration in the United States with that PRO Act uh, where they're looking for quite significant changes uh, not only in terms of uh, workers rights but in terms of the role of unions if you like as a quick and flexible fix to trying to create more pay solidarity within firms and you know, in, ensure a fairer distribution of wealth. And again, I was talking to Big Mike uh, from the uh, Amazon Alabama organizing campaign and you know, feels, well, let's just say a 
big change from the previous administration to have President Biden tweeting his support uh, for those Amazon workers. So we want to see what we have been long promised, which is an employment bill. Uh, we have lots of ideas about what needs to go in there. Uh, including the right to organise, including um, the right to guaranteed hours, uh, sometimes expressed as a ban on zero hours, but certainly the right to guaranteed hours so that people can plan their incomes, their shifts and their money. Um, and also pro-worker flexibility. I think, again, if we've learned lessons from this pandemic, it's that people have a real appetite uh, not to work at home all the time, this is our experience and our evidence, uh, nor to be at work all the time, but to have a bit more balance, especially if you've got caring responsibilities, a bit more freedom and flexibility. Uh, so I think that's going to be really important. But I do also think that any key feature of any new social contract is going to have to be reform of welfare. You know, we do, we have had that decade of austerity. We've seen welfare uh, and many of our public services in fact cut to ribbons. Uh, social care of course wasn't mentioned in the budget but I can tell you it's high on people's minds but also sick pay. You know we've had cabinet ministers admitting they couldn't live on 96 quid a week. We've got two million people mainly women very low paid who don't even qualify. Again the pandemic has exposed how uh, that's a problem for us all if people can't afford to do the right thing and self-isolate but hopefully it's also exposed something fundamentally flawed about our social contract when so many people feel so uh, to coin a phrase left behind locked out frankly um, forgotten about and very often it's women, black and ethnic minorities, and a whole generation of young people who are at that sharp end. So higher or lower, definitely higher. Okay, very clear. Thank you, Francis. Let's turn to Minette. Well, Manoush, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with you all today. And I'm, I'm listening in to what Tony and Francis are saying and, and agreeing with, with a lot of it, all of it, probably. Um, and I want to make the case, I, I guess, for, for agriculture, for rural Britain, 70% of the country is, is rural. And, and this uh, road that we're on now is, is a game changer. Um, for uh, an industry, I think, that has been very good, my sector at kicking the can down the road, that can has come to a grinding halt and things are going to change and change rapidly. And there is a real need, I think, for all of us to recognize what's at stake, recognize the risk, recognize the opportunity, but most of all, embrace, embrace the change. So when I look at the exam question, effectively, of today, um, do we want to see higher, lower, or stay the same with our regulatory framework? And I look at the journey that has been about our trading relationship with the European Union, a crucially important trading partner, Brexit or no Brexit, 500 million consumers on our doorstep uh, and our closest trading partner and will remain so. It's, so it's incredibly important. And to a certain extent, it has dictated the terms of reference to date and it will 
continue to dictate the terms of reference for the future, particularly when we look to the environment uh, and agriculture and food. Um, but is there a chance to do it slightly differently and to look to influence the EU? And, and I think that is absolutely where we at the NFU sit. So regulation underpins who we are. It underpins everything. Um, I, I feel it is incredibly important that you have to define actually what you want to achieve. Why, why are you regulating it? What are you regulating and what do you want to achieve? And I would totally agree with, with Tony's um, four points. And if we are going to build a, a different future, we have to look at, at agriculture and the rural economy very differently to what we have done to date. And I will often have conversations with the government uh, in DEFRA, whereby they will say, well, you know, Treasury is not interested in food grown on our land. And uh, there are two sort of pauses for thought there. Okay, really not interested in food grown on our land, 70 million people, an island nation, everybody in this country has at some stage experienced food shortages. Um, so I think we should be interested in food grown on our land. And also uh, when I look to the future of the rural economy, and the massive amount of foreign investment that is here now, huge amount. So 75% of beef processing is Irish owned. Liquid milk market is owned by Muller and Arla. The vast proportion of manufacturing and processing is owned by foreign businesses who are based here for one reason and one reason alone. And that is because the raw ingredients are grown here. They would much prefer to be in, in Poland or somewhere else where you have much lower cost, of course, of regulation. So what I would say is that I don't think, and Manoush and I discussed this beforehand, I don't think there is a one size fits all. You know, we want different things out of this liberalized world that we are going into. But one thing I do know is that we had a standards petition last year, a campaign on food standards, and a million people signed that petition in under a month. So in two weeks, we saw a million people sign a petition and we saw 80,000 emails go into MPs inboxes saying that they did not want to see our farmers undermined in future trade deals. And that delivered some change, which is quite difficult as the others uh, on this call will know, moving a majority government is not easy, but that ultimately delivered some change. So we know in my sector that regulation costs. If I take poultry as an example, we insist on windows, we insist on natural light, we insist on veterinary medicine oversight, we insist on stocking density. That regulation is predominantly EU shared regulation of which we always rose that bit higher because we've always gold-plated EU regulation. And that represents currently 19% of costs. So regulation costs, and as we embark on this world and what I've just said about equivalence with the EU and maintaining market access and trade with the rest of the world, what does that mean with the food imports that we bring into our marketplace? And ultimately it has to be fair. We have to have a fair approach to regulation, which leads back to all Tony's points of let's have a race to the top. The two, Key points for the NFU in all of this um, are we must have regulation that is science and evidence focused. Too often it is driven um, by political challenges, it is driven by emotion, 
uh, and to a certain extent, rhetoric and response to others. So focusing in on science and evidence-based regulations, the point I made at the beginning of what do you want to regulate and what do you want to achieve at the end of it? Recognizing the business impact. I think to that first point, so often we don't always recognize the, bus the business impact. And then I look to the fact that we have transposed all of EU laws onto the UK statute book. And we are very rapidly going through what we want to keep, which seems to me at the moment, all of it, and potentially raising the standards up. And we have a chance to stop and pause and say, actually, you know what, how do we do this differently? How do we lead the global reset on green growth? and climate change. And don't forget, we are the first country in the G7 to have legislated to achieve net zero by 2050. Now, nobody is gonna be able to get out of that one. And it is a massive opportunity for the UK, but only if we lead the global charge, if we do it on our own and we are not focused on the green growth policies that we need to get there for business remaining competitive, then it, it is really gonna act as a disadvantage. So a huge opportunity for us. So. In conclusion, I guess what I would like to see is enlightened, innovative and agile regulation that is not just about cut and paste of what we have done in the EU, whereby we just layer and layer and layer. And we really do look at what we want to achieve. And to finish with one example, because I have huge issues around the fact that we, we completely take our food for granted. We do not recognize the link between the food that we eat the supermarkets that we can access 24-7 and, and our whole economy. And, and, you know, it is the largest manufacturing sector and I want it to remain the largest manufacturing sector, food and drink, based on the raw ingredients that we, that we produce here. I do not want to see a Singapore on rural Britain approach. And we've led in this debate so well. And the best example probably of what we have done that brings agriculture into the focus of our human lives is on antimicrobial resistance. So 2011, under David Cameron as prime minister, we led a global reset on antibiotic usage, both in human health and in livestock production. We had targets, we agreed principles, we lowered usage. And we took that forwards into human health as well. And where we are now, that was only in 2011, we now lead the world on AMR and responsible use of antibiotics in the livestock sector and in human health. And COVID is such a game changer. COVID, a zoonosis, of course, an incredibly difficult challenge for this world to change. So we have to take a different approach. We've set really good baseline opportunities with what we've done with things like antimicrobial resistance, but it needs a fresh approach. And my worry is to what Francis was saying, a certain extent that we are racing ahead and we really need to make sure that we are, we are doing this uh, across government and we are allowing the reset that needs to happen. Uh, at the moment, it almost seems like we write the press release and then we think of the policy and let's develop the policy and then write the press release would be my concluding message. Okay, very clear. Thank you, Minette. Uh, Sam, final word on the climate and energy. Yeah, thank you. And I'm really, really pleased to be part of this amazing panel. Um, my background, as, as Minouche just said, is, uh, is on climate change. So I'm asking or answering the question, 
from the point of view of um, both the risks, uh, the environmental risks, if we don't do anything about climate change, but also the economic opportunities if we do act on climate change, the sort of zero growth opportunities that we have. But let me try to answer the exam, actually answering the exam question up front, uh, more or less or equal amount of state. If you think of climate change as the largest market failure ever, as, uh, as uh, Nick Stern, my chairman, the chairman of my institute here at LSE has called it, it becomes quite clear that we probably need more state because market failures is something that the state is there to, to deal with. Um, more probably doesn't mean, you know, it means more effective um, as much as it means more in quantitative terms. But let me try to sort of go through three of the sort of Brexit uh, objectives that have often been mentioned and, and asked what is the interplay between those objectives and climate change. Um, one of the Brexit objectives, obviously, is, is to change our relationship with the European Union. And climate change has been uh, a big part of our uh, relationship or our interaction with the European Union. One thing that isn't European, and that is important to say up front, Minette mentioned the net zero emissions target that we have legislated. That is a UK target that has nothing to do with the EU. This is our own target. Um, and it was, in fact, passed sort of at the height of the Brexit wars, if you will, in the summer of 2019. So if you're ever asked what the most important uh, sort of legacy of Theresa May is, it is this. She is the prime minister who legislated the, the end of greenhouse gas emissions in, in the UK. So that's the target. That's a UK target. But a lot of the delivery to meet that target actually was EU regulation. So we are now in a situation where we have that regulatory divergence, potentially, uh, which can be good. And I think uh, in, in uh, Minette's sort of area uh, on, on land use and agriculture, there, there are clearly opportunities to, to have environment, environmentally more enlightened regulation, but there can also be risks. Um, I'm thinking of the fact that we are no longer part of the EU emissions trading scheme, which had a lot of teasing problems and didn't really work very well for a long time, but it was a very effective um, mechanism in the end of, of reducing emissions regionally across, across an entire economic area. And being out of that now means that we are potentially also on the wrong side of a European border tax adjustment, carbon border adjustment that is currently under debate, just because the EU will want to protect its environmental policy again against uh, outsiders. So there's a risk here of regulatory divergence and, and, and actually more regulation if there is a border tax adjustment. So that's sort of objective number one, our relationship with the EU. Objective number two in Brexit terms that has often been mentioned is the sort of bonfire of regulation, the Singapore on Thames uh, uh, objectives of Brexit. And as I already said, um, climate change needs a more assertive state, a more enlightened state. So there's a tension between those two objectives here. Let me just give you two examples what I mean by that more enlightened state or more in assertive state. One is we need climate policies that bite. Uh, we have done, this is a global example, not a UK one, but it will apply 
uh, we have looked at the 2000 or so climate laws that there exist worldwide. It's not the case that the state hasn't intervened on climate change. There are 2000 laws globally on climate change. The issue is what have those laws achieved? If you crunch the number, they reduce emissions globally each year by about the equivalent of the US CO2 output. Now the US is the second largest emitter in the world, so that's a lot of carbon, but it's miles away from, from net zero. So we need stronger uh, regulation that bites. We also need more predictable uh, regulation. And that's something that came out loud and clear when we asked um, investors what they think about the UK Climate Change Act, which is one of those 2000 pieces of law that a lot of people would say is world leading. We like to be world beating these days, but the Climate Change Act is actually one of the few areas where the adjective you know, probably applies. But if you ask uh, investors what they think of the Climate Change Act, they will tell you it's not investable. It's a wonderful piece of law, but I'm not willing to invest against it. Why is that? Because the policies that, that have come underneath the law, the policies implemented within the law, they keep changing. And there's that regulatory uncertainty that you don't know what you're investing against. There's a, you know, there's a long sort of, People in my uh, uh, walk of life give you long lists of examples of how the government has changed its mind on zero carbon homes, on carbon capture and storage. We're now opening coal mines in West Cambria. David Cameron is a good example. You know, it took him from vote blue, get green, to let's get rid of the green crap. It took him eight years to do that. So there's that, uh, there's that worry about the regulatory uncertainty. And we need better, more predictable long-term um, regulation to, to overcome that lack of investability. So that's my second Brexit sort of objective and what it means for climate change. The third one is the story of free trade and the story that Brexit allows us to go out into the world and strike free trade deals with the growth engines of the future. Um, on the one hand, there probably is a trade-off there as well. I just talked earlier about the quarter carbon adjustment of the EU, the worry that climate regulation at home will impact your competitiveness abroad. The EU has that worry, but the UK has that worry as well. And so if you then sort of want to address that through border tax adjustments or similar, it grates with the free trade agenda. You can't go out there wanting to strike free trade deals and then impose those sorts of uh, environmental carbon-related barriers. So there's apparently a priori a bit of a tension. Fortunately, there's also a very easy way around that, which is to not think of climate change in terms of the, the regulatory burden and the costs, but in terms of the growth opportunity. And there you can see the things actually coming aligned, Brexit, free trade, climate change becoming aligned. If you think of it as positioning ourselves uh, as, as, as a zero carbon growth engine, if you look at it as competitive advantage in the zero carbon economy, then things come together. But that does mean, again, a more assertive state. It means that we bring together environmental regulation with social regulation and industrial policy, and we don't do that yet. Okay. So before turning to questions, I just want to link a little bit what you've said to each other. It's very interesting that all of you have said, this is not about, Brexit isn't about bonfire of the regulatory framework. You have all said, 
standards need to go up, not down. You have all said that we want a regulatory framework that is more long-term and strategic uh, and, and you know, less volatile. And I just, uh, I feel like I should play devil's advocate, even though I agree with you, <laughs> um, because, you know, clearly governments are looking for a Brexit dividend, some clear benefit. And I think what you're saying is the benefit won't come from lower standards. And so I want to push you a little bit on where will the benefit come from and how long will it take, uh, given that, you know, politics is a short term business. Uh, and, you know, in a, I should say, in a, in a previous life, I, I, when I was at the World Bank, we used to go around the world advising countries on how to improve their investment climate and what they needed to do to get more investment and productivity in their economy. And we used to do surveys of investors and ask them, what's wrong with this country's investment climate? And the surveys were, you know, whether you were in Angola or France or Brazil, the rank ordering of what investors cared about uh, were very similar across countries. Number one was kind of stability, political and macroeconomic stability. Uh, number two was, uh, was always something around, was often two, three, and four were always something around the quality of the infrastructure, skills of the labor force, uh, the, the market, the size of the market I have access to in that country. Those were the kinds of things. And I have never seen low regulatory standards listed as a desirable thing that an investor would look for in any survey. Um, so, you, so I wanna ask you to talk about if it's not, if the Brexit dividend isn't gonna come from lower regulatory standards, what's it gonna come from? And what are these other areas that we need to be, that we need the state to do? Because you've all argued implicitly for a more activist strategic state. What are those things that the state needs to be doing to deliver benefits? Who would like to volunteer? I'm happy to go first because um, it's kind of easy to forget the big Brexit dividend was supposed to be shed loads more money for the NHS. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't think we should let anybody forget that. But I also think that government may be looking in the wrong place for the Brexit dividend that it's seeking to deliver. I mean, uh, we were talking just before we went on air about various reviews without naming them into some quite tedious, detailed levels of regulation, which frankly, I'm pretty sure if I was able to go into a workplace canteen or stand on somebody's doorstep, that that wasn't the first thing on their mind. Mm -hmm. Rather, I think there was a real appetite for political accountability. I think there was a, a, re, a strong feeling about globalization and um, decisions being taken in Brussels or for that matter, Berlin, without any accountability at home. I think there was a real appetite for my high street in my town to look better and be safer, uh, a real appetite for decent and dignified work. And, you know, so I, I think uh, certainly we did a, a poll just after the election that showed, for example, in the former red wall seats, support for higher labor standards 
was even higher in those seats that went conservative. So, you know, I, I think it would, the government's got to be careful that it doesn't miscalculate and misinterpret what people are looking for, because I don't think it's a tedious review mm. of detailed regulations. I think people are looking for material improvements in their working lives and communities. Mm. Very good. Thanks, Francis. Anyone else want to come in? Tony? Yes. And then Sam. I think the biggest benefit is that we are for the first time as a country that I can really remember having a serious, long-term, ambitious conversation about our own competitiveness. And I think good things flow from that. And I think some of the good things, things that flow from that and will flow from that are we are taking very seriously, to Sam's point, what it means to lead the world on net zero. Uh, we are taking very seriously, I hope, the fact that we are behind on investment in R&D or that we do less well than G7 countries and most of Europe in terms of technology adoption across most of our business space. And I actually think the catalytic effect of Brexit to force us to do that as a nation, which, by the way, is very typical of countries when they come out of trading blocks. You know, it's probably the Singapore story, by the way. I think that in itself is the single most important thing to have happened. And by the way, it's got even more important because of, uh, because of COVID as well. I think it's forcing us to make big bets. I think when it comes to regulation, I think the agility point will be really important. When I, when I speak to businesses across Europe, uh, it's not like they love EU commission-based regulation they find it suboptimal, a messy compromise of lots of different jurisdictions and stakeholders behind not digital enough, not contemporary enough. And I think the simple math of doing it for one country rather than 27 allows us the opportunity to do that. We should talk about the trade-off between uh, predictability and agility, by the way, those two don't, think, don't always go together, but I think those, that square can be circled. But I, I think those are the yields I mean, there's political yields and discussions that are outside of this business and economic framework uh, that I know people disagree about. But I, I think for me, you know, being self-interested around business and the economy, that's the yield. We're doing this for the, we're having this conversation for the first time. We're having genuine industrial strategy conversations as a whole nation for the first time. Sam, and then I'll turn to some audience questions. Yeah, actually, uh, just to respond on your agility versus predictability and then make the point I really wanted to make. I mean, I was on my list as well. Predictability is something I mentioned in my remarks, but you have to be agile at the same time. And uh, certainly in my area on climate change, that's absolutely true because technology isn't the context is, is changing so rapidly. But one way of doing that is actually looking uh, at uh, that monetary policy where there's absolute clarity about the rules and, and how... Uh, how decisions are made, but then obviously the decision responds to the context. And that can work. You know, everybody knows who sets the interest rates and roughly uh, who's a dove and who's a hawk and what they do and how often they meet and so on. But the actual interest rate responds to the, the, to the economic context. So some of that combination of agility and predictability can, can actually be transferred into areas like climate change and I imagine others as well. But the point I wanted to make where, where the government can do more is actually something very, very, you know, non-glamorous, which is attention to detail and regulatory competence. A lot of 
where we are and a lot of the things that are complicated is very technically detailed little tweaks to the regulatory system. You know, things like uh, the VAT on new builds being different from the VAT of refurbishing homes. That's not glamorous stuff, but it sort of does change the incentives and it makes things happen. So regulatory competence and addition, and uh, attention to details, I think, uh, are worth mentioning. Okay. Let me turn to a question actually from Kevin Featherstone. I think I might start with Minette on this one. Uh, whatever the UK regulatory regime, wouldn't business follow that of the EU or the US as the biggest markets? And wouldn't the UK just be a distracting encumbrance? A little bit of the argument, say, on GDPR, where, for example, it's argued that Europe kind of set the global standard because they were the biggest market and they were out there first. And then everyone basically had to follow them. Are, are we at risk of, 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 of industry basically following the standards of the biggest market? Oh, look, we're, we're at huge risk of that, Manoush. And, and worse still, we're at risk of being divided in that part of the economy is, is following the US route and part of the economy is following the EU route. And if you, you look at the structure of the economy, 80% of it is services and 20% of it is goods. Now our relationship with the EU has been predicated on the 20% that needs tariff and, and quota free access. But the, the challenge is that that 20% could well be the sacrificial uh, price to pay for wider services as we negotiate rapidly those other trade deals. And where I think I always thought it was her, her best move, and it will be in time what she's remembered for, was Theresa May uh, laying down the legislation uh, to achieve net zero by 2050. That's going to be massive. And that has to be uh, what dictates the future. And it has to become investable. And ultimately, what we need now is the policies that are going to lower those emissions that will empower the green growth and the jobs that we all want to see. So we've really got to paddle our own canoe here, because if we don't, uh, we're going to be pulled in half. Now, the worst thing for um, four uh, countries, one nation or four nations, one country, I should say, is to be divided. And I think that route on climate change is what brings us together. It drives a more competitive nature, it drives productivity because it has to, and it drives green growth and jobs, which is what we all need. So that, to my mind, has to provide the platform for engagement. What we are missing and what the budget didn't lay out is what those policies are going to look like that is going to lower emissions, that is going to drive that green growth. And, and that's what we need to work, I believe, collaboratively on now. Otherwise, there is real danger when I look to the environment bill that we really divide this country. And we do have a Singapore on terms approach with maybe financial services and others. And we look to have gold plated plus, plus, plus in other sectors. Interesting. Very good. Let me turn this one to Tony. Uh, it's a question from Austin Bloom, who's an LSE alumnus in the United States, who asks, what lessons can the UK learn from nations such as Switzerland and Luxembourg? Is there an awareness that the post-Brexit paradigm can be a massive step forward in economic growth, including in financial services? Well, I, I think the truth is, it comes back to the previous question. Uh, what can we learn from others? Absolutely. We, we need to start looking at others. You know, we've probably never looked at Switzerland and Luxembourg, and I don't think anybody's actually seriously looked at Singapore, if we're being honest. So I, th I think, you know, what, one of the things that comes from this process is we should start looking at them. Uh, but I think in financial services in particular, I do think 
And it, it's a bit like, it, it sort of follows up to Manette's question, really. I love this image of paddling our own canoe. And uh, our canoe is bigger in some places than others, of course. It's probably pretty big in financial services. I, I, I mean, I do think that there's a really interesting new question for Britain in terms of its power and soft power around the world and areas where we can genuinely lead and areas where we can't, areas where we're going to be regulation setters versus regulation takers. And I do think in financial services, I do think the chancellor in the budget and the industry in general is looking at genuinely taking world leading positions on the future of financial services. So that might be around you know, the use of AI or the growth of fintech or, or cryptocurrency, all kinds of stuff. And I do think that's a place where our canoe's pretty big and, and we could be playing a world leading role in terms of standard setting, regulation setting, service sector liberalization and so on. Uh, in other places, less so. Uh, and in life sciences is a really interesting one, right? What a boost we've had in the last year for our life sciences sector and credibility around the world uh, and the superb alliance that was the Oxford vaccine. Yet we're still probably pretty far behind the US. Net zero, you know, the work we're doing on economic vision says that there might be certain technologies where we can be a global standard setter and others where, if we're being honest, we can. And Sam will probably have a, a, a much more granular take on those than I. So look, the, the broad question about learning from others, I, I don't know enough about Switzerland and Luxembourg to be able to give you a concrete answer in Switzerland and Luxembourg. But I think we should look to others who have had to, as, uh, as Manette puts it, paddle their own canoe and can still have soft power in the world and be a standard setter uh, rather than just sort of an endless regulation taker. I don't think that's necessarily true. Sam, I think you want to say something about Switzerland. <laughs> You're on mute. Apologies. Given that I'm Swiss, I feel I should have some confidence <laughs> about Switzerland. Um, a couple of observations. Uh, one is that um, Switzerland did take an economic hit. There was a referendum, I think it was in 1992, not to join the single market. There was a sort of an economic slowdown after that, and, and, and certain types of firms uh, moved uh, economic functions abroad, like the financial sector moved to London, for example. So that economic hit was real. Uh, the Swiss sort of got kind of used to the situation and they sort of willing to pay the sovereignty premium. Um, so even now, despite the economic hit, um, there wouldn't be a majority of changing that decision. So it's interesting things get locked in. The final thing I would say is that uh, the Brexit negotiations, if Switzerland is anything to go by, will never stop. Since 1992, there has been an ongoing non-stop never-ending set of negotiations with the EU. This entire, you know, people have made their career in Switzerland of being an EU negotiator because they started in 1992. 30 years later, they're still doing it. <laughs> We're going to be running this seminar series at the LSE forever, is what you're telling me? Basically. <laughs> I'd, be Manish, I'd be interested in other panellists' views on what the appetite for international leadership is um because it seems to me that the uk i mean i you know i remember very vividly in the immediate wake of the finance global financial crash the role of gordon brown in bringing people together i mean literally in rooms uh to come up with a plan 
Mm. Um, I, I haven't seen that kind of political leadership in the UK since, I have to say. So Tony was talking about the G7. I think it will be very interesting to see whether something comes out of that, again, in material terms. Uh, we know the, the UK's priorities on democracy and health and prosperity. Um, a little bit of a whisper, there might be something on um, taxation, digital taxation, you know, big tech taxation, which would be significant, I think, if, if that was to establish some kind of benchmark or some kind of, you know, kick that door open. But I think that will be a real test this year. Yeah, it's a good response. I think. Oh, sorry. Well, no, no, I'm, I, I, go ahead, <laughs> Well, I, I think I think this recent crisis, both the pandemic and the economic response, has been uh, very distinctive in its lack of international cooperation mm. to deal with it, and much mm. very different than what we saw in two thousand and eight. But I think the main reason it was different was because the U.S. was was had gone AWOL in terms of the international system. Uh, you know, I still remember in 2008 when they had the G7 and the G20, George Bush went around and apologized yeah. to everyone for causing the crisis. And the US was in a position of really wanting to contribute to a global solution. That's not what we've had in the last, in the last year. And so I think it, to be frank, I think it's less about the UK and more about the US. But on the other hand, the US has changed and the UK has an opportunity to, to do something significant at the G7. But Tony, you may have some... some well, I was just going to sort of reassure Francis that I, I think number 10 are incredibly focused on the G7 and incredibly focused on COP. And I think the Prime Minister personally, uh, it, it reminiscent of, of Gordon in 2008-9, I think he's pretty focused on them. That, by the way, doesn't guarantee you success, but I, I think they see it in similar terms. And I think you're right, Manoush, with, with the Biden administration, coming in the way they've come in. It, it really raises the stakes and the opportunity. Uh, we are, it's an interesting reflection, isn't it? How borders have literally gone up in the last year by virtue of the nature of the crisis. Uh, one of the things that I'll be doing with my president is chairing the B7, which precedes the G7 by a month. And uh, we write a communique to the G7 leaders about the issues uh, business have raised. And one of the themes we are trying to pursue is this idea that actually when it comes to the international collaboration uh, post-COVID recovery, actually businesses very aligned around the world on some of the major themes and the major areas of progress, unlike governments. And we're, we're going to try uh, and actually give a sort of, you know, part to the elbow of governments to find a new collaboration after borders have gone up. We've selected three themes, trade, digital and climate change as the themes the B7 will focus on with a view to then encouraging the G7 to find alignment on those three areas. So I'm a bit optimistic, but uh, it's, a it's a very strange time, isn't it? A time when borders are literally closed. Can the world collaborate on a post-COVID recovery? That's, uh, that merits well, debate. Sorry, I was just going to say likewise on the L7, Tony, for labour unions around the world. And of course, what's fascinating is that there are a lot of former union and AFL-CIO, our sister union centre officials, now populating the Biden administration. So, um, you know, I think that dynamic is going to be really, really interesting. And Francis, if you don't mind me asking, sorry, Manoush, I'm slightly taking your job and asking <laughs> this, but what, what, what is, I mean, when I think about, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, 
have business, you know, have borders gone up for business? And I think not. But I, uh, but I recognize that they might. In, in terms of labor, in terms of union sort of solidarity across borders, has it, you know, higher, lower or same, to use the title? Higher, very definitely. I mean, just on a personal level, I speak to what I call the, the big five, Russia, Japan, America, Germany. We speak on a regular basis because we're facing so many similar challenges, but also trying to um, leapfrog, if you like, in terms of what we can achieve for working people in our respective countries and learn from each other, exactly as we've all been saying, how important it is to learn from each other. So I'd say in some ways that, that kind of internationalism has become every day uh, rather than just a, you know, a nice aspiration. Well, and actually another concrete example, Janet Yellen recently reversed the Trump administration's opposition to the international tax proposals that the OECD proposed yeah. so that we can get a sensible international corporate tax regime that reduces the 40% of multinational taxes that are hidden in tax havens. And you could have a system whereby companies pay tax where they actually operate as opposed to where they've got a brass plate in a, on a Caribbean island. And so that also is a huge change in, in international collaboration. Let me turn to another question from the audience, from Linjun Peng, who's an MSc student from the LSE from the US, but currently in London. And the question is, what kind of, I think that I'm going to start with Francis on this one. What kind of institutional safeguards do you think we have to prevent unpopular or ill-informed regulatory changes? For example, NHS deregulation and the chlorinated chicken row, which I'll ask Minette to <laughs> comment on. And further, will the UK's ability to resist pressures from large multinational firms without the EU be diminished? I have this concern because as we've seen in Australia, large tech firms can leverage their product and presence to lobby against popular regulatory measures. So maybe Francis start and then Minette. That's a great question. I mean, from a, from a TUC perspective, we're always uh, trying to influence in corridors, but uh, with the backup of public campaigning, because <laughs> uh, as I always like to say, having access which is good, actually, we have good access, but that's not always the same as having influence. So it's really important to us that we, um, we maintain the pressure uh, from outside and also just expose some of these issues. We're doing a big piece of work on AI, for example, um, and workers' rights to privacy, workers' rights not for um, algorithms not to be used in a discriminatory or oppressive way in terms of because um, we've seen this massive increase uh, in the use of algorithms during the pandemic for obvious reasons uh, so I think I think it's always important to to kind of shine that light and try and rally people around and build strong alliances but obviously we don't have the resources uh, of some of those tech giants um, nor do we necessarily have the same influence so I think it's about being permanently on alert. <laughs> Very good. And Minette, while you answer that question, I'm going to throw in another one for you from John P, who says, if we insist on current or higher food standards, does that mean sacrificing any chance of a US-UK UK free trade deal? And is it worth giving that option up? Sort of related to chlorinated chicken question. Well, look, the chlorinated chicken question has um, become sort of front and center, really, of, of Brexit. And 
it doesn't do justice actually to the debate. And um, when I had the conversation with Ted McKinney when I was over in Washington a year ago, uh, actually with, with Dame Carolyn Fairburn before Tony took over, and uh, I was explaining the chlorinated chicken to Ted and uh, he immediately looked at me and he said, but that's why you're leaving the EU to get rid of all that stuff. And I said, well, possibly that's what people voted on. But ultimately chlorinated chicken is perfectly safe to eat, totally safe. It's a food safety issue. Um, chlorinated chicken in the UK is about value. So we don't chlorinate wash our chicken in the UK because we keep our birds differently to the point I said about the cost of regulation. So we insist that you can only have so many birds in a shed. We insist that you have windows. We insist that you have uh, vet med oversight. So we have laws. In the States, there are no federal laws on this issue of the values of how you keep a bird in a shed. So this is why it is so complex. And when I said to Ted, so I said, I'm not against coronated chicken. It's fine if you want to do that. I've enjoyed eating it over here. It's great. But I said, my issue comes when we have trade that is unfair. And we say to our guys, you've got to go up there. And many of you will have heard the prime minister saying, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine because we're going to have higher standards here. Well, that's even worse because you take our farmers out of the market and you put them in a market that doesn't exist. And what do we do then? We export our production abroad and we put our guys out of business. So that's the challenge with the whole chlorinated chicken argument. You know, we've got to remain competitive, but ultimately the British consumer has been demanding these things uh, going forwards. Now to the second point uh, on, will it derail a US-UK trade deal? I honestly felt under Trump, a US-UK trade deal was impossible really. Um, and with the whole Republican agenda, in the run up to that election and the challenges of COVID, you know, this was not about harmonization of trade. This was about, uh, dare I say it, it was, it was about ego and it was about different things to, to trade on, on a common approach, which I, I believe has, has changed. And it was America first and that's all fine, but that's in the past. So I think it would have been impossible, quite honestly, before for the many reasons that TTIP got derailed that it would have been fought out in the public domain and just such mass fury that it would have been impossible. I think now it is achievable, but we've got to do it in a constructive manner and we've got to do it in a respective way. But look, the point I said, and I always remember Gavin Barwell when he was chief of staff saying, uh, we went through the heavy lifting of goods and 20% of the economy. And then his eyes lit up and he said, right, now we get onto the exciting bit, the services. And that stuck with me forever. So at the 11th hour of a trade negotiation, I genuinely don't believe the negotiators are gonna go, oh, no, don't worry, US, uh, we cannot compromise our farmers. Uh, they are gonna come first. It's not gonna happen. So I believe the economy understandably will win out, which is why we have to do the right thing here and make sure that we, we get market access. We're far more aggressive on trade. We spread our risk and we take a different approach. Manish, sorry, that's a whirlwind trip through. It's such a big subject. It's so difficult <laughs> to give answers that are short. subject. <laughs> you can tell I think about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Let me turn, I think, this one to Tony, and the next one after that will be for Sam. For Tony, from uh, Dr. Kishore Deer in Delhi, who's uh, sending a question in from India. What would happen to the UK's WTO obligations in the wake of Brexit? Oh, 
Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to rapidly compute the answer to that question, but I'm not sure I've got anything magical to say. So I, I wonder if the questioner or if any of the other panel want to come in on it. Because I'm, I, I, give me a little bit more if we can. That's, yeah, that's all I've got in the question. I'm guessing, I mean, the UK become, well, I, I'm not going to speculate. I'm going to ask uh, Kishore to send a follow Kishore can put some more in. Look, I, I think that's we it. have, uh, one of the things I think we want to talk about at the B7 is strengthening the WTO. So I, I think, you know, I, I think that's, that, that's important first and foremost. I think the UK should believe in that. Uh, I, I, I will just comment. May, Can I comment? A wonderful on, new, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, just a couple of comments on the question that came before. And by the way, how good is it to have Minette thinking about these issues? How brilliant she is, and Francis thinking about the labor issues. Sorry, I just wanted to make that observation of my fellow pa uh, panelists. Just be careful about institutional safeguards against bad regulation. I mean, another way of putting that is, you know, what on earth do we do about sovereign sovereign governments and, you know, that have got electoral mandates to make changes? How do we guard against that? I mean, I, th I think the answer is parliament and democracy. You know, I mean, I think that the brutal truth, whether you like it or not, is governments elected on a mandate to do Brexit, they get to do Brexit. That's democratic. You know, if, if they that, and I, I just so I'm just a little bit anxious about that idea about institutions that guard against what I hope we have is parliament is a successful institution. And institutions like Manette's and Francis's and mine help them make better decisions and media help them make better decisions. And by the way, just on this question about overly powerful multinational companies and the large tech firms, just don't misunderstand the, the idea that what you've got is business on the one side and society on the other side. I mean, the truth is we just recently curtailed the power of powerful tech companies in Australia because other powerful companies like News Corp you know, fought a rear guard action. And when it comes to things like the online sales tax or the digital services taxes, which come up this year, there's lots of complicated business perspectives on that. Half our country's retailers believes in an online sales tax, half of them don't. Uh, we've got a ton of SMEs who are digital only businesses who are deeply worried about what a digital services tax looked like. So I, I'm not speaking in favor of the power of multinational companies or tech platforms, because of course there are real dominant position questions to be raised. But I just, you know, I, I think that never assume that businesses of one voice in these things. These are highly competitive industries uh, with a lot of competitive dynamics going on that don't necessarily cut straightforwardly you know, all of business wants X regulation and none of, uh, and you know, and labor or other society wants is against it. It's very I mean, rare should... that clear cut. Sorry, Tony. I, I wonder whether the questioner was also thinking about issues like uh, dispute resolution mechanisms, uh, in, oh, investors and states. I have no idea. But he's yeah. actually come back and said his question is, would Brexit dilute the UK's WTO obligations in some sense, reduce them in some? And I'm not aware. I don't think that is the case as far as I, I know so. that, that uh, it would not. Mm -hmm. And the UK is a member state of the WTO and would still comply. The one thing I would add is there's a wonderful new head of the WTO, uh, Ngozi Okonjo-Owela, uh, and I think there's a real opportunity for the UK to revive the long abandoned uh, trade and services negotiations. And it goes to what Minette was referring to as the other 80%. Uh, the UK has a huge interest in seeing more global agreements on trade and services. Uh, and I think that would be something that we should really spearhead 
and try and resuscitate those negotiations which were abandoned many, many years ago. I agree entirely. I think that's right. I think that's right, but I do think we have to be careful about uh, governments getting sued by corporations or the chilling impact that that can have. And also how we enforce standards in trade agreements. Uh, you know, we've just had a big example of that with the yeah. uh, Brexit deal that, you know, the risk that fine words can be written. But if if all it ends up with is a strongly worded letter ticking somebody off, then that isn't a great guarantee of enforcement of standards. Yeah, very good point. This one's for Sam from Oliver Charles, an LSE student in London. You keep saying that climate change is an opportunity for growth, for green growth. Is growth really achievable if we want to meet the Paris Agreement's goals? Is degrowth the solution? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a long, long debate in, in, in academic in circles in, in economics that sort of goes back to, to Malthus, actually, and Jevon sort of worried uh, that we would run out of coal, ironically, um, which we had. Um, and then there was the Club of Rome. So that there's always been that sort of question as to to what extent can you can you uh, decouple GDP growth from from your environmental impact? And just of, uh, there are certain areas where you probably can't, but sort of the historic sort of uh, evidence suggests that often it has been the case. Technological progress is 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 a wonderful thing in that respect. It doesn't always work. Often it doesn't, but it can sort of work. We're, we're on the people sort of think about our transition to a to a weightless economy. So uh, where where you know there's much less resource input per unit of welfare. We're moving in that direction. One of my colleagues is an economic historian at the Grantham, and he has calculated um, what would happen if you had to transport all those electronic messages, all those emails, all that web information all that uh, downloading, streaming, <clears throat> what would happen if you had to transfer that information by the means of the 19th century by a courier with a horse? And it would be completely unsustainable. The number of horses you would need would be in the trillions and uh, the supply of hay would basically sort of mean sort of, you know, troubles would, would sort of dwarf in terms of food security. <laughs> so this is just an example of how... Uh, you know how technical progress has actually allowed us uh, to to become less re resource intensive and and more prosperous. But absolutely, there will be there will be trade offs uh, in 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 some areas. But uh, at the moment, the evidence is we we can actually grow and protect the environment at the same time. Okay. Next one is for Tony, I think, from Armand Samani, saying, "How exactly can regulation be made more agile?" You're on mute, Tony. No, no, I know. I'm, I'm trying to oh, fast. <laughs> no, no, yes, occasionally. It, by the way, it's not something I do very often, but uh, it shows the power of the question. You know, simple questions are always the hardest. They're always the hardest. And, no, well, I was just trying to process at, re at breakneck speed examples. But I look, I think the real, the real thing about agility, I think it's particularly true in new markets and rapidly changing markets. Mm. And I think it's particularly true, therefore, in relation to the digital, the digital space and the net zero space. Yeah. Where, and again, it's where Sam might be good on this trade-off with predictability. 
But I just think, you know, if you look at some of our media and, te and technology regulation that Ofcom currently holds, right? There's not a lot in there that speaks to an AI world. Mm. Uh, when I think about net zero and some of the emerging technologies that I've seen and discovered, I don't, I don't think our regulators know what they are, let alone how to think about a framework for them. So I think agility is particularly important where technology change is, is, is as rapid and, and uh, you know, where the metabolism of technological change is faster than the usual metabolism of regulatory processes. Mm. Look, the obvious agility, one, I tell you what's really interesting that I've learned, because I've been talking to loads of sectors about this government desire to, you know, to have more rapid regulatory change or regulatory divergence. Uh, a lot of it turns out to be about the, be the, the pace and effectiveness and agility of the regulator as an organization. I mean, I think what's really interesting about the MHRA thing, which is where we got into a debate about was it Brexit or not, was they just moved incredibly fast with high standards in mind because of the urgency of the issue. So I don't know that that's a piece of divergence. I don't think that that's, a, you know, but what I think it is, is about regulators trying to move with agility and pace in reaction to the pace of change around them. And so for me, it's either about speed and effectiveness. It's frankly about productivity of regulatory organizations. And that I have to tell you is what most businesses complain to me about. They're not pushing for divergence. They're pushing for their regulators to be faster, smarter, you know, better. But I, I do think there is something to be said around agility in relation to a world of changing technologies. And that's where I think the trade-off comes down to predictability, where almost you want the opposite of predictability. And I know, I know that's, that, that's a bit of a false dichotomy, mm -hmm. but you want to be able to respond to new environments and new technological emergencies. And that's where I think agility is massively important. And just an example I think I could give in addition to that is in the fintech sector, where when fintech was just starting, the Bank of England and the FCA created something called a regulatory sandbox. And the idea was small firms could play in that sandbox with slightly looser regulatory standards on an experimental basis while they were small until one could figure out what regulations would be appropriate. And that's, I think, a really good example of regulatory agility. Sam, I think you wanted to come in. And I, don't, I think, Minette, I thought I saw you maybe saying or you might want to. Yeah, just to agree with Tony, that one area where this is really important is, is, is in zero carbon technologies because they're moving so fast. And again, the sort of the, the balance, I guess, is between being very predictable about the process versus being very nimble about responding to, you know, how that process responds. A good example is, is um, the solar PV tariffs, the, the subsidies for solar photovoltaics that we used to have, which used to be very generous because solar PV was very expensive. And it then became clear that those costs were falling very, very rapidly. And by keeping the subsidy constant, obviously you started paying too much subsidy relative to the cost of the technology. So you had to change that. Um, but the government didn't do it particularly well. They did it overnight. They did it, didn't do it very transparently. And that caused a lot of damage. In contrast, if you, if you sort of, you know, forward guidance again to go to monetary policy, if you, if, if you uh, explain to investors how you will change the rules depending on the circumstances you observe, and everybody observes the same circumstances. You can factor in uh, those sorts of uh, those sorts of development. You still have the risk that technology becomes cheaper than you thought, 
but you no longer have the risk of not knowing how the regulator will respond. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. Did you want to come in or shall I move on to the next question? Oh, uh, I don't call things out, Manish. Do move on. Okay. I've got, a, I think, two more questions and then we'll wrap up. This one is from Bonnie Coor, who's a high school student in Scotland, who asks, what inequalities will be heightened the most from Brexit? Uh, obviously, the economy could rise or fall, but what, what will it mean for inequality in the UK? You know, I'm, I'm going to sound and I suppose I am sort of speaking very vested interest here. I mean, my my greatest fear on, on inequalities is that one of the huge successes for this country has been that we have the most affordable food in Europe. We have the third most affordable food in the world. So we have the US, good old Singapore that doesn't actually produce any of its own food. But anyway, <laughs> Singapore, that I feel is coming for a lot of criticism, sits in second. And, and we, as the United Kingdom, sit in third. So it's been a massive success story for consumers. And having spent in the 1970s 30 to 35 percent of our income on our food, here we are today and we spend then less than 8% of our income on our food. And yet we have the highest standards uh, of any country really in the world and probably the safest food system in the world that's been driven by some pretty shocking food scares, I might add. And the real danger for me when we look at, at inequality in the country right now is if we drive a two-tier food system. So if we basically say, you know, the, the Islington set, the metropolitan elite, where you, you can have lovely, you know, high quality British food that's produced to X, Y and Z standards that becomes unaffordable uh, for the average person. And that would be an absolute travesty. We have to continue to make sure that we have food for all, high quality, affordable, affordable food for every single budget in this country. And we have a crisis on diet, an absolute crisis. You know, we have a massive obesity problem, a massive issue with type 2 diabetes. So to get back to whole food, to scratch cooking, get back to valuing our food has never been more needed. And if on the back of this, we drive a two-tier food system, that will be a lasting legacy that I, I believe will drive greater challenges for this country that, than we have seen, because it will be a sign of other, other things as well. So that would be my big concern and is my focus on avoiding it, because wherever you come from in this country, you've got a right to be able to buy British food. Okay. Anyone else want to come in on inequality? Um, I mean, I, one, of, one of my big concerns is that Brexit is kind of, or the impact of Brexit has sort of been lost in the pandemic. And because it's longer term, Mm. It's perhaps a bit more difficult to detect exactly what's Brexit, what's, you know, life. Um, but the jury is probably still out because we don't know exactly which direction of travel the government's going to take on food, environmental and labour standards. We don't know, for example, what the state aid regime will look like. Um, but I think, you know, there's been lots of work on this. The real concern is that um, there are, you know, places in Britain who, depending on if, if, for example, our manufacturing industry gets into real trouble, and we've seen uh, that the motor industry, for example, uh, is facing real challenges, then job losses, good jobs being lost. Uh, without gigafactories and all the rest of it, everything else that we need to give a future uh, for that industry 
uh, there are particular parts of the country that could be in real trouble. But there are also particular groups of people. I think it's, you know, I mean, I campaigned for maternity rights, the maternity rights EU directive, equal rights for part-timers. People forget six million part-time workers didn't have a right to paid holidays, didn't have rights to pensions, agency workers. You know, there, there are so many um, groups, particularly women, particularly those in low paid and secure employment, who could lose out, depending on the political choices the government makes. I'm going to call this one the last question really quickly. And uh, it's a broader question and you can maybe make any final remarks uh, you want to make. Uh, and I'll maybe just go around to all the speakers probably in reverse order this time. And the question is, uh, very good webinar, interesting contrast between approaches, but but both of, well, it's, it's, you seem to have an interest in the government developing a strategic approach to economic growth uh, with an appropriate social dimension, which tackles the economic effects of inequality. So how far will all of you work together on encouraging this government, which seems to be focused on the short term, to take a far-sighted strategic approach? That question is from Sarah Wynne Roberts. So if it's about the long-term if the Brexit dividend comes from taking a long-term approach, how do we get, how do we get that? Who would like, it? so Minette, can I start with you and then Sam? And then yeah, I mean, a, a, a great question. And I think all of us, I always remember David Davis saying back in the early days, um, sort of um, pre-referendum that the CBI, the TUC and the NFU would be pivotal in, in shaping the future. And, I think we are all absolutely up and are doing every single thing that we can to work with government. I know that government has been on a journey as to how it wants to work with unions and trade associations. I think we've come in and out of favour. I like to think that we are firmly back in favour and we are a really willing tour de force. And what I have tried to work on with government is wherever there is a problem, we work up a meticulous policy solution so that I am never going to government and saying, this is my wish list. And by the way, you are wrong on X, Y, and Z. That we go there and say, this is the policy solution. How do we work with you to deliver it? And I think that's what all three of us offer. We all bring different skill sets. Um, but you know, it's, it is difficult and unusual working with such a majority government. And, and I hope that we can get much closer together because one final thing, Manoush, we as such a densely populated country and the size of our economy and the opportunity, it needs a new approach as to how we work in partnership and true and meaningful partnership, whereby we do lead that charge, that race to the top that Tony talked about together. So we've all got to embrace it. I think we've all got to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, we've probably all got to change. Um, but I know I speak for the NFU saying that we are really up for this challenge. We see enormous opportunity and, and I very much look forward to working uh, with Tony and Francis, not forgetting the huge expertise of, of Sam and the scientific approach to all of this, which I believe should certainly underpin the future of regulation. Very good. Thank you, Minette. I'll turn to Sam and then Francis. Yeah, I mean, the, the question was absolutely right, that the short-termism is, is one of the problems. We need a longer-term approach to policies. In, in my area, in climate change, climate is the ultimate long-term problem. I mean, we, we want 2050 
we have 2050 targets for next year. So we're thinking sort of 30 years into the future. So in climate change, people have always wondered how one moves beyond the short-termism into the long-termism. And some sort of institutional um, tricks have, have, have sort of been devised and broadly they work, they don't always work. But one of them is to have a little bit of independent scrutiny. So you take some decisions out of the hands of uh, politicians who think short term and, and you give influence to longer term technocratic uh, bodies. Uh, the Committee on Climate Change in my area is hugely influential when it comes to advising on what the long term path to net zero should be. And so maybe the Industrial Strategy Council could have been that. We will, we will never know. Uh, but that's one way of doing it. Putting certain targets in law can be quite successful. Um, in the climate change area, uh, there are carbon targets which are sort of 12 years ahead, uh, which are statutory and, and legally binding. That gives a certain amount of long-term thinking and long-term forward-looking. Um, that doesn't necessarily work if those targets can't be enforced in court. We've seen that with, say, uh, fuel poverty targets, which, which uh, you know, were in law as well, but weren't upheld. But those are some of the sort of devices, I think, that we can that we can use to impose a little bit more of long-term thinking. Francis. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a huge paradox that we have this, you know, massive majority in Parliament uh, to the point where, in theory, you would think there's no point even lobbying. Um, and yet we have now an incredibly complicated political scene where, you know, Everybody remembers Andy Burnham and his parker outside Manchester Town Hall. The, the city region mayors, um, the nations, you know, what's going to happen with Scotland. Uh, the Loyalist Community Council withdrawing its support from the Good Friday Agreement. You know, there's a lot of volatility, a lot of complexity. Um, and actually kind of against that backdrop, I think one of the things that you saw during the pandemic was pretty incredible cooperation uh, between uh, business, the NFU and unions um, on basic issues like job protection, livelihood protection, safety, uh, equality at work. Now, of course, it wasn't always perfect. We didn't always agree. But it was almost like a relearning of the art of negotiation that we had to, if you like, model. We're coming from different places. Um, we represent different constituencies of interest, but we can come up with practical ways of solving problems and moving forward, uh, you know, to suit us all. So I thought that was quite an important lesson. And I guess my big concern is that uh, government forgets that lesson, uh, that it gets swept away uh, as, as uh, the pandemic hopefully recedes. But I don't think we should leave that lesson because uh, I absolutely agree. If you look at those successful economies around the world that are built on high standards and good democratic rights, including independent trade unions, then they are the ones, you know, that have arrangements in place that allow more than one voice in the room and we know there can be a real strength a real improvement in the quality of decision making where there is 
diverse in every sense, diverse voices in the room. Very good, thank you, Francis. Uh, Tony. Well, I made a speech about exactly this uh, about two months ago, and I said we need more in 1945 than 2008. Uh, I also think that in the last year, uh, Francis Manette and my predecessor, Carolyn, uh, really role modeled what great collaboration in the interest of the nation uh, meant. Probably not a coincidence that it took three women to do that. But anyway, I'm going to try and, I'm going to try and uh, hold up that part of the bargain. Uh, we're incredibly aligned. Uh, you know, the CBI is doing an economic vision piece of work. Minette is part of our family. We have lots of universities part of our family. And Francis and I are on speed dial. And I can assure her and everybody that anything we put out will have had a TUC uh, view on it as well. So I'm pretty optimistic. And one final word of optimism, one of the upsides of uh, the uh, industrial strategy apparently disappearing and being replaced by this new plan for growth is the plan for growth has lots of white space. And I think it's people on this call that should be helped filling it in. And I'm hopeful that that will happen in the months ahead. Very good. Well, it just leaves it to me to close what has been a fascinating discussion. And it was for me particularly lovely because you often heard things that you didn't expect, which is always the sign of, uh, of a good discussion. And I think we all and the audience, I hope, learned something. Thank you to the audience for joining us. Thank you to our wonderful panel. For, uh, for really making us think differently about Brexit and beyond. And, uh, and if Sam is right, we'll be inviting you back to discuss this topic for many years to come. So thank you very much and see you again soon, I hope.